Hello and welcome to the weekend wrap for the week on Wednesday. I am your host, Ben Davison, and it is Sunday, the 4th of June in the year 2023. And I hope wherever you are listening around Australia and indeed around the world, whatever day you may be listening to me, it is a lovely, lovely day for you. Three big stories that have come up towards the end of the week that I think are absolutely worth talking about. Obviously, the minimum wage increase, the Reserve Bank's appearance at Senate estimates, as well as how that ties into the Greens' appearance on Insiders, and of course, the result in the Ben Robert Smith defamation case. Word of warning, there will be some discussion of pretty graphic content when we come to talk about that story. That will be at the end of the episode. So if you're not feeling quite up to listening to that, that's probably the time to tune out. But first up, don't go anywhere because want to talk about the minimum wage case. Now, the minimum wage case was handed down on Friday. It's an 8.6% increase for workers on the minimum and 5.75% increase for workers on award rates. Now, this will have a direct impact on 2.67 million Australian workers. 2.67 million Australian workers. Now, to put that into context, The Australian Union movement does the case, does the campaign, fights for, advocates for, lobbies for, does all the work to make sure the minimum wage goes up. If it didn't do that, if it didn't do that, the boss's lobby would achieve their real pay cut of $1,350 a year. That's what they wanted. That was what they were lobbying for. That's what they were campaigning for. Different bosses' lobbies different amounts, but that's that's how much people could have lost. If the union movement wasn't there, wasn't doing that work, $1,350 straight off minimum wage workers. Now, that has an impact across the workforce because when you lift the floor, you give people more capacity to negotiate better wages and conditions. And union members do make more they're non-union members doing the same jobs, right? In different companies, obviously, but where a company is unionized and the workers are productive because they are working collaboratively, they have good union conditions, they have more job security, they have better training, all the things that we know improve productivity. They're the things unions bring to the table. And in exchange for that, they get additional pay. In fact, union members earn 26% more than non-union members in different companies, obviously, but that's the difference. Now, if you're not already a member of your union, go to australianunions.org.au slash wow. Join Join right now. Join while you're listening to the podcast. Join before you start work on Monday or before you go to your night shift tonight, whatever time of day it may be, wherever you are, fill in the form online because, quite frankly, it's absolutely worth it. Not only do you get more pay, not only is it a tax deduction in most cases, you are contributing to ensuring that the floor continues to rise And when I say the floor continues to rise, some of the 2.67 million people who are on the minimum wage include disability support workers. And this increase will be worth an extra $66.50 a week 
to an entry-level disability support worker. For an entry-level retail worker, this is worth $51.08 a week. These are these are big increases, you know, and I, one of the things that some of the workers have pointed out is that these increases will help them with their rent, they'll help them put food on the table. These are fundamentally, fundamentally how people will pay their bills. And at a time where the Reserve Bank is still talking about how to reduce inflation, we need to break down the impact this will have on inflation because the reality is it will have no impact on inflation. And in fact, the Reserve Bank has said as much. So even though the boss's pamphlet has come out and said that this will cement a rate increase, the reality is giving the lowest paid workers effectively a cost of living adjustment in their wages does not fuel inflation. There is no wage price spiral. This allows minimum wage workers to keep up with the cost of living. And in some cases, will actually still not quite keep up. So we have to be really, really clear here that when the Reserve Bank makes its decision next week, which it will, it may well increase interest rates. But this is because of the profit price spiral. Interestingly enough, this week, the Reserve Bank Governor Phil Lowe appeared before Senate estimates, and the big uh, issue that people have latched onto is that he has suggested that more people should live at home for longer, we should have more multi-person dwellings. And look, to a degree, I agree with him. Australia has gone from having three or four people per household to, in many cases, just over one person per household on average. This is why averages don't work, right? Because you can't have 1.2 people in a house. But still, what it means is there's a much greater demand for housing and housing stock. And with a population growth of 2%, is our housing stock growing by 2%? His point was, no, it's not. Therefore, if people can't afford to pay increased rents because there's less housing, then they'll end up living in share accommodation. That's the price uh, mechanism at work. That's what he said. That's accurate. That is absolutely what the price mechanisms do. What he continues to do, though, is reject the idea that there is a profit price spiral, even though now in the UK, the USA, and Canada, the profit price spiral is absolutely openly acknowledged as one of the driving features of inflation, where you see grocery companies, where you see fuel companies, where you see retail chains making record profits, despite despite the supposed inflationary pressures, this is driving inflation. They're not lowering costs. They're not lowering prices to try and encourage people to buy more. They're extracting more profit from consumers. Now, I do want to talk a little bit about the issue of housing and dwellings. That's what the RBA calls houses. I mean, it's all part of the uh, high priest-like role that central bankers try and 
create for themselves, right? They use different language. So they don't talk about homes and houses. They talk about dwellings. You know, they always use different language, different jargon, and it's designed deliberately to put us off. Um, of course, what's happening now is it's starting to bite them because when they do use normal language, it's so stark by contrast. So, you know, this week when he talked about uh, multiple people living in the same dwelling, people realized what that meant and went, oh my God, he's trying to get, you know, houses of 15 people. Not quite sure that's where he was going with it, but one of the points that he makes very clearly is that population growth of 2%, there's not enough housing growth. uh, And what are we going to do about that? One of the things that we do about that is prices increase and people have to make decisions about how they spend their money. Now, on Insiders Today, the Greens uh, spokesperson against Labor's housing policies uh, was again railing against Labor's housing policies. He's taken to Twitter to just rail against Labor. It's quite amazing. In the same Twitter thread where he starts by saying the Greens are trying to offer a compromise, he then spends half the tweets in a 10 or 11 tweet thread just attacking Labor. This is not a good faith negotiation, right? Let's be really clear about this. The the Greens at a local and federal level have blocked action on housing and some of their arguments are absolute nonsense. One of the arguments that's been raised is around land banking. There are different laws, different regulations, different planning uh, uh, conditions that can be placed to prevent land banking. In fact, we've seen that happen in Melbourne where they haven't in non-Greens dominated councils where conditions on planning permits have prevented land banking. And yet none of these mechanisms are even considered by the Greens. What they want now is they want a billion dollars given to the states to buy the the homes that were constructed as part of the National Rental Affordability Scheme. The Greens spokesperson against Labor's housing policy has said that uh, these homes will be vacant uh, once the scheme ends. That's not true. People live in those homes. <laughs> they pay rent. Yes, they do. Uh, part of the arrangement may be that they continue to pay rent at the same level. They may have to pay slightly more. It'll depend on the it'll depend on the the provider of the the properties. This idea that we would spend a billion dollars buying homes that already are occupied uh, by low-income individuals uh, that are essentially affordable seems like a total waste of money to me. There's now some acknowledgement on the part of the Greens that there are limitations on how many uh, homes can be built at any given time. Those limitations are driven predominantly by supply factors, not just land, but supply of materials, supply of trained uh, tradies and workers. And so they have halved, they have halved their initial demand. They initially wanted five billion dollars a year spent on constructing new houses. They've now halved that to $2.5 billion to be directly spent. Now, 
that would be a third of all properties finished in any given year. That's how much it would be. Now, Australia does have a problem with housing. There's no question about that. And government can play a role. But the Greens' obsession that somehow or another the federal government is the only body that can solve this problem is leading them to ignore some basic realities. Reality number one, local governments control planning. Local governments consistently, consistently reduce supply of housing. Now, the Greens have argued, and they continue to argue online, that no, 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 they developers who build houses for profit are part of the problem, not part of the solution. It actually takes a mix. It will take a mix. In Australia, it will take a mix because we do have developers who are prepared to build significant numbers of homes, but they do want to receive a profit for that. They will invest money, their money, investors' money, and they want a return on that. That's a reasonable thing to occur in our country. We also have developers and institutional investors who are prepared to build homes and receive a lower return to make it more affordable for people. We have the ability to impose conditions where there is a mix in a development of market rate, that is the developer gets the rate of return that they can extract from the market, affordable homes, which is there's a discount applied, particularly for essential workers, uh, particularly for low-income families, uh, and even social housing, which is effectively uh, very cheap uh, rental accommodation the government traditionally has provided social housing. Sometimes it helps provide affordable housing, like the National Rental Affordability Scheme. The mix is important. It's actually important to not build ghettos. One of the great mistakes that was made in the past in Australia was putting all of the social housing together, just cramming social housing recipients into the same space. Having mixed developments where people can interact, see how other people live, uh, they can build social community relationships, they can start to build new economic relationships. These are all important factors. And the research consistently shows that where you have mixed housing development, you have better outcomes. The great challenge of that, of course, is actually convincing people who can afford to pay market rates that there is a benefit for them living in affordable and social housing developments, because often there's a stigma attached to that. And what the Greens position consistently does at a local level, and now with this federal advocacy that they put forward, is reinforce that stigma. It actually reinforces that stigma. I don't think they mean to do it. I actually don't think they mean to do it. I think they believe that what they're doing is righteous and virtuous, even though the outcomes are not. But by saying that there has to be government-only provided housing, by consistently at a local level knocking back 
new developments, reducing the amount of affordable or social housing in a development. And there was a great example raised of a development that could have gone to eight stories. The council, dominated by Greens, made it go to seven. Then the developer agreed to put affordable housing in it. Then they brought it down even further. I believe it was to as low as four or five stories. And of course, the affordable housing units came out of the development. Why? Because the developer was unable to meet their internal rate of return, the return they need to get on the money that they borrowed to build the development if they offered affordable housing. And the Greens then blamed the developer. It is ridiculous. It's a nonsense. You've got the Greens going on insiders, which, by the way, it just it strikes me now as no longer – it shouldn't be called insiders. It should probably be called outsiders because they've now had the Greens spokesperson against Labor's housing policy. They've had Lydia Thorpe, the leader of a movement who stands alone in a hallway to declare herself the leader of a movement. Uh, and they've had uh, <laughs> they've had the Liberals on more often than Labor. I mean, Labor is in government – Federally, it's in government in every mainland state and territory of the Commonwealth, and yet we consistently see Murdoch spivs on the couch and non-governmental uh, spokespeople. You can hear Germanicus scratching in the background, I'm sure. Um, non-governmental spokespeople as the interview guests. The point I really want to land here is that there are numerous problems with the housing market in this country. And there are lots of different levers that need to be pulled. So at a state level, in Victoria, for example, the Labor government has increased taxes on land speculators and land bankers. Councils need to impose permit conditions on those who would seek to bank the land. They need to actually make developers develop the land constructively. They also need to remove conditions that prevent increased density. This is a huge problem. And pretending that it's not because it doesn't suit the Greens' political narrative is disingenuous. It is absolutely disingenuous. Pretending that opposing a thousand new homes in Brisbane because they would be built on what the Greens spokesperson says is a floodplain, even though the council uh, engineers say it's suitable for habitation, is disingenuous. It is absolutely disingenuous. And I get it. The Greens play raw politics. They're not in power. They don't need to... uh, actually do anything. They just need to consistently take a position that is popular, that makes people feel good, that allows them to say whatever they like. And this whole new uh, play today around a quote-unquote compromise is a nonsense. It's not a compromise. It's not a compromise to say, instead of multiplying what you were going to do by 10 times the amount, we're only wanting you to multiply it by five times the amount. 
They continue to attack the housing fund. They continue to suggest that it is somehow, quote-unquote, gambling. I mean, these people's understanding of finance is pathetic, quite frankly. It is pathetic. They lack basic understandings of how governments work. They lack basic understandings of the multiple levers that need to be pulled to make complex intersectional policy function. And housing is a complex intersectional policy. It involves local, state, and federal elements. It involves people's lives. It involves people's livelihoods. It involves supply chains that spread across the globe. It involves financial uh, flows that come from all over the world. And yet they pretend that simply writing a big number on a piece of paper and slapping it on the table at National Cabinet will solve the problem. And it won't. It simply won't. The federal government cannot step in and increase the amount of homes started and completed in a year by 30%. We do not have the capacity to do that. We've talked about that before. Still, the Greens now say, oh, well, the slowdown in commercial housing means we can. Maybe we can do a bit more. Maybe maybe there is capacity to do a bit more. But it doesn't go from $500 million worth of housing in a year to $5 billion worth of housing in a year without the total collapse of commercial construction. And that's not what we're seeing. That's not what we're seeing. We've got to get the balance right. We've got to get the mix right. We've got to improve and increase affordable and social housing. We're not going to do that by simply slapping big numbers on the table and pretending that that's the solution to the problem. We have to change planning conditions. We have to change the way taxation laws operate. As we've done in Victoria, so must we do federally. We have to change the incentives for investors. We have to change the way that construction occurs so that there is more capacity to build more quickly and that there are more trained professional builders available. The Greens have offered no solutions in any of those spaces. Let's be really clear about that. And the Reserve Bank's point and the point that's been made by people in the construction industry, by construction unions, is that until you start to address all of those other elements, you're going to end up with more people living in share housing or living at home because they can't afford to pay rent on for ever-decreasing numbers of available rental properties. That's the reality. And quite frankly, the Green spokesperson against Labor's housing policy is just totally, utterly out of his depth. Rhetorically, fantastic. Politically, absolutely kicking goals. But in terms of policy, in terms of what the country needs, we need a little bit more than just the ability to write multiple zeros on a piece of paper slap it on the table and go, well, they did it in Spain, so we can do it here. And by the way, that's not how they did it in Spain. That's not how they did it in Spain. All right, 
I want to move on to the final uh, story to cover this week. This is about Ben Robert Smith, and it does involve descriptions of some pretty traumatic events. So if you're not feeling up for it, I totally understand if you want to turn off at this point. But I think it's important we discuss it because it's not just about Ben Robert Smith and what he did. It's also about billionaire and corporate-owned media and the way it operates in this country because it is fundamentally broken. So this week, Ben Robert Smith lost a defamation case. So the judge found that the Age and Sydney Morning Herald established substantial uh, the substantial truth of allegations uh, that he he murdered unarmed civilians in Afghanistan. I apologise for the pause there, but. That they had established the substantial contextual truth of allegations that he murdered unarmed civilians in Afghanistan. Now, this was a year-long uh, defamation trial. It was initiated by Ben Robert Smith following uh, allegations made in the Asian Sydney Morning Herald against uh, him and his behaviour. Ben Robert Smith, of course, as of today, is still Australia's most decorated uh, war veteran. I want to be really clear about this point. The actions of Ben Robert Smith and the actions of any war criminal are not are not indicative of the vast majority of people who serve in uniform. My other mum, Kim, served in uniform. I have friends who've served in uniform and they've served with honour and dignity and sought always actually to have peaceful solutions and resolutions. They've built bridges and hospitals. Yes, there has been at times combat, and of course our Defence Force has defended our country. And in Afghanistan, we saw some of the most brutal fighting that Australian forces have been involved with since the Vietnam War. But the brutality of our enemy is no excuse for the committing of war crimes. So Ben Robert Smith, it was determined on the balance of probabilities. So this is not a criminal trial. This is a civil trial. So on the balance of probabilities, it was found that he had kicked a man off a cliff and ordered another soldier to then execute the man who was in pain and dying that he machine-gunned an elderly disabled man, that he took the prosthetic leg of uh, a victim and used it as a trophy and instructed other soldiers to drink from it, that he physically and verbally abused other soldiers uh, under his uh, command. These are quite horrific stories that he he abused prisoners who were handcuffed. Now, there were a number of soldiers who testified around Ben Robert Smith and the allegations, some who were called who didn't testify because they didn't want to incriminate themselves, who had served under him. Uh, It's hard to know exactly what that means, but one can imagine uh, the that is a, an incredibly difficult situation for those people to be put in. This court case cost around $35 million. 
Now, Ben Robert Smith will likely be forced to pay that. Of course, all of this, all of this came about because Ben Robert Smith did the wrong thing. He then was called out for it after he'd been awarded the Victoria Cross, Australia's highest award for gallantry. He was called out on it by the media and he objected to that. He thought that was defamatory. And he got Kerry Stokes, the owner of Seven West Media, on board. In fact, Kerry Stokes not only helped fund Ben Robert Smith's uh, prosecution of this case, he also helped fund the expenses of witnesses, not through Seven West Media, but through another part of the Stokes empire. And he said at a Seven West uh, AGM that Ben Robert Smith is innocent and that scumbag journalist should be held to account. And you can quote me on that. So I just have. That was a direct quote. You know, even now, even now, so look, Ben Robert Smith has resigned from uh, Seven West Media. He wasn't sacked. He resigned. He's on a holiday in Bali. There are photos. It's all online. He didn't attend the judgment. He's not required to. He's fully entitled to have his representation there for him. Uh, But the reality is, in a civil court, he's been found to have, uh, on the balance of probabilities, murdered, executed, brutalized, abused, uh, and desecrated uh, innocent civilians. That's, I mean, that's a pretty uh, disturbing finding by anyone's stretch of the imagination. Now, the Daily Telegraph, which is owned by the Murdoch uh, billionaire empire, ran a, well, civilians just don't understand editorial. We just don't understand what it's like, you know, and we need to cut these people some slack. And quite frankly, I could not have been more disgusted. You know, I was disgusted by what Ben Robert Smith did, absolutely disgusted. And I felt terrible for the families of the people who will probably never really see justice uh, and for the soldiers under his command, for the soldiers he had to serve alongside, for the soldiers who were discouraged from calling out this behaviour, who have received verbal abuse, who've been, who's received harassment during the course of the trial, for those who did speak up. I just, to see the Daily Telegraph then defend Defend a culture of criminality, it speaks to why billionaire and corporate owned media in this country is so broken. Kerry Stokes, Kerry Stokes has defended a war criminal for years, made him an executive, made him an executive, no, no particular qualifications, skills. It's just very tall, very tall, chiseled draw, quite fit. Presents well, looks good in a suit, so they made him an executive. Can wear his Victoria Cross to work every day. Well, quite frankly, he doesn't deserve that Victoria Cross. And that's been quite a bit of scuttlebutt around that as well, in terms of how he earned that. But the reality that the Daily Telegraph would defend criminality 
would defend criminality against our own men and women in uniform, on the balance of probabilities, Ben Robert Smith was found to have bullied and assaulted Australian soldiers. So I I understand the Daily Telegraph's position. I understand the Daily Telegraph's worldview, right? And they don't place value on the lives of the people that Ben Robert Smith murdered. They don't, right? They never have. That's their view. They continue to pursue that. They don't think of people from Afghanistan as people, or if they do think of them as people, they don't think of them as people as having the same value as the lives of Australians. And that's basically what that editorial suggested. But what that editorial completely glossed over is that within the Australian Defence Force, Ben Robert Smith was a cancer that attacked other members of the Australian Defence Force. That's what he did. That's what he did. On the balance of probabilities, that's what he did. So the billionaire-owned media defends the same billionaire-owned media pet, even when it's a different billionaire. (laughs) I mean, it boggles the mind. It truly boggles the mind. Now, don't get me wrong. I have my issues with the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Corporatised media isn't a lot better than billionaire-owned media, quite frankly. But in this case, it certainly was. And the journalists involved absolutely pursued the story. And credit to their corporate paymasters, they didn't abandon those journalists. They proved on the balance of probabilities the substantial or contextual truth of the allegations, which is a remarkable thing for them to have done. But it speaks to the weakness of our model of journalism. Because quite frankly, and people have suggested this online, If it hadn't been those two particular journalists who are well-known, who are well-established, who are themselves incredibly forceful personalities, how many other stories just fall below the line? How many other stories get spiked entirely, don't get a link to run online because corporate feels a bit uneasy? I'm aware of many, many cases where good stories stories about truth, stories that attack corporate interests, not even corporate interests directly owned by the media outlet, but perhaps corporate interests that advertise on the media outlet, that have partnerships with the media outlet, whose board members might share positions across different companies, where those stories are delayed, they're not run online, they're only run on page 36. There are Lots and lots of examples. It's why the ABC is so important. It's why I'm so critical of the ABC, because we need it to be strong. It has to take into account the entire news and media system in Australia. And the vast majority of that system is dominated by billionaires and massive corporate media, which means it needs to be brave. It needs to tell the stories that corporations don't want told. It needs to stand up against Kerry Stokes and Rupert Murdoch and the editors they put in place. And it needs to put Peter Costello from time to time back in his box, who's, of course, the chair of the nine 
Fairfax Corporation. So important because the work that these journalists have done at the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age, they've done despite being attacked by billionaires. Not everyone is going to do that. And I think the fact that people who went to war, who were exposed to enemy fire, who in some cases were injured, did not want to speak in court because of the pressure that was being applied through the media by billionaire-owned media outlets, the societal pressure placed upon them to not speak out about Ben Robert Smith actually speaks volumes, the power that they have. People who face violent deaths were afraid, made to be afraid by the power of billionaire-owned media. It's quite remarkable. It's quite remarkable. So reform will be needed, no doubt. Ben Robert Smith, I don't know where he's going to find $35 million from. I'm sure the Stokes family will sort something out for him, as they have been already. Apparently during the year the defamation trial has taken place, he's been on leave from Seven West Media anyway. So hopefully he's been squirreling away his pennies while he lays in his lounge in Bali. And of course, my thoughts go to all of our service personnel who are wrestling with what has been a devastating, devastating cultural expose for everyone who does the right thing in the defense force which is the vast majority i thank you for your service to our nation and i hope that we stand by you during this very difficult time and for those who have done the wrong thing if you happen to be listening to this podcast i hope that you are exposed and face justice so that we can move on as a nation on that note, that's the end of the weekend wrap. Now, Van and I will be back on Wednesday for the week on Wednesday. We are rapidly closing in on a million downloads. So a huge thank you to everyone who goes to buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday. Your support allows us to reach more and more people every single week. It's just phenomenal. Well over 40,000 uh, downloads last month. And uh, if current trends continue, well, we'll hit that million mark very, very, very soon. Ben wants to have a big party. We'll see how we go. Uh, we will probably take a break next Sunday as it is a long weekend where we are in Victoria and Van and I are planning to have a little bit of time away together. I hope you'll understand that. Until Wednesday, remember to be kind to yourself and to each other.